thank you. Well, I guess, first of all, thanks for having me and Rachel, my wife, here with you. It's always a, a blessing and an encouragement to us to see all of you and to be with all of you. Um, and I guess the next thing is, I think Mary mentioned it already, but well done for getting here on time. Uh, I think we're, we're so fascinated by time as people, aren't we? We're all about saving time and everything. And even at the, the, the church me and Rachel go to in Cambridge, we've been going through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And a few weeks ago, we had the chapter all about there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to reap, and a time to sow, all of that. But we thank God that this is his time and that we're here not for ourselves but for him. Amen. Uh, so we can thank God and praise his holy name and fellowship and worship him today. Today I'll be preaching on, it's a, well, it's, it's a story that I'm sure everyone in this room will know about. Uh, it's, it's the story of David and Goliath. Uh, but I think, well, I'm not sure about you, but I haven't heard it preached on a lot. I think it's more uh, one of those stories which is found in Sunday school that you teach to the children and bring out things about how big our God is and stuff like that. But I'm sure I'll touch on that as well. But there's a, there's a lot in the story which points us to Jesus. Uh, and I'd just like to bring out a few points which you may or may not have heard before but we thank God that his word is always in us and he can always speak newness through his word day by day even though we've read a, a, a specific chapter or passage a million times before we can thank God that his word is never dull it's never old it always speaks to us and speaks to us in our situations that we find ourselves in. The, the passage, it's a historical narrative part of the Bible. Uh, it's actual history recorded in the Bible for us. Just, uh, I, I won't be reading the whole chapter. It's found in 1 Samuel 17 because it's a very long one. But I'll be picking up from 1 Samuel 17 verse 40. And reading to verse 54. But a little recap of where we are, where we find ourselves uh, before we get to verse 40. So you have the God's people, his covenant people of the Israelites. And they, their land is invaded by one of their many enemies, the Philistines. Uh, and you have the Israelite army and the Philistine army pretty much lined up against each other. And the Philistines, they have this champion that they send out, Goliath, a literal giant, uh, a warrior who's, from his birth, has been brought up uh, to fight, to wage war, and to win. That's why the Philistines send him out as their champion. And I, I, I can't remember how tall he was, but a lot taller than me and, and anyone else in here. Uh, and the Israelites, are, they're, well, they're scared, you can imagine. This huge guy in all of his armor with a massive sword, a spear, and these Israelites are terrified. So King Saul is looking for someone that he can send to go out 
and, and he won't do it, he's too scared. All of the soldiers, they're too scared. And then there's one, well, he's just a bit older than a boy. This David, who will go on to be King David. But at this point, he's just a boy, a shepherd boy, who volunteers to, to go out and fight Goliath on behalf of the Israelites. Uh, he tries on King Saul's armor. That's too big. Uh, he's too small. So he goes out in, in his regular clothes. Uh, and we pick up from 1 Samuel 17, verse 40. Then he, David, took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine Goliath so the Philistine came and began drawing near to David and the man who bore the shield went before him and when the Philistine looked about and saw David he disdained him for he was only a youth ruddy and good-looking so the Philistine said to David am I a dog that you come to me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods and the Philistine said to David come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field then David said to the Philistine you come to me with a sword with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air, and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharaim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it speaks to us even today. We thank you that your word is not irrelevant, but it is also very relevant to me and to everyone in here and to those on Zoom as well and to everyone in this world. We thank you, Lord, and ask that you speak to us today, even me especially. Uh, may my words be your words, Lord. Uh, keep our hearts and our ears and our minds fixed on you, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so hopefully I'll be going through four points uh, from our passage today. Uh, our first point I want to look at is God's choice of David, which isn't specifically found in this chapter. Uh, it's found in the previous chapter in 1 Samuel 16. We read uh, in, that, in the previous chapter that God commissions the prophet Samuel uh, to go out and anoint a new king. For Israel. The Israelites did have a king, King Saul, but he wasn't a good one. He, he sinned, he disobeyed God, and he'd gone too far. God wanted a new person, one of his choosing, not of the people's choosing, to be king. And Samuel was led by God to the household of Jesse uh, to anoint this new king. Uh, and Jesse brings out his sons one by one, starting with the oldest, uh, starting with the strongest. And God says, no, it's not this one. It's not that one. And he goes through all of the sons. And Samuel asks, Is, do you not have any more sons? Because God hasn't chosen any of these. And then there's one out in the fields, a, a shepherd boy called David. And he's described in our chapter as ruddy with bright eyes and good looking uh, a youth um, I, I always chuckle when I read that a ruddy and good looking boy um, but that's the one God chooses he chooses a boy to be king he doesn't choose based on strength physical ability he didn't choose the strongest of Jesse's sons he could have had smarter sons, more intelligent, but he chose David. And in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 we read why. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him, speaking about the older sons. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the out." with appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't choose based on fitness, on strength, physical power, even intelligence that the world uh, aspires to and celebrates. You can see all the, all, pretty much every sport, especially in the Olympics, they celebrate the fastest, the strongest, even the ones who can jump the furthest. In school and in education, we celebrate those who are the cleverest. We give awards to those who are the smartest. And many other things that we as people uh, look for in other people and aspire to be in our own lives. But God doesn't look at those. He looks at our heart. 
and something that I, well, it always is on my mind that God knew that in anointing David, even as a boy, that one day he would face Goliath because God knows all things. God can see through all of time. And it makes it more peculiar almost that God chooses a boy to be the future king of Israel. He didn't choose one of the big, strong warrior types to go on to face Goliath, but he chose David. Even Goliath was shocked when he saw who was coming towards him, when he saw David stepping out to challenge him on the battlefield. He even felt insulted that the Israelites sent out this ruddy and good-looking youth to battle with him. He was thinking that this, this kid isn't worthy to, to be in my presence, to breathe the same air as the mighty Goliath, never mind to fight him, to challenge him. But we know, don't we, we have the luxury of having the whole Bible uh, in front of us, a great blessing. We know that David won, that he beat Goliath, and he went on to become arguably Israel's greatest king. And all this from a shepherd boy. We all have beginnings, we all come from somewhere, don't we? We don't just suddenly arrive at this point with all that we have. But David, throughout the Bible, is just one of the many people that God chose that I think the world would just simply look over. That the world would simply pass by without noticing. We see that God chose the very old and barren pair of Abraham and Sarah. And through them, they became the father and mother of countless descendants. He chose Moses to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Not when Moses was in a position of authority, not when he was the prince of Egypt, but when he was a convict and when he was in exile. We see that God chose Ruth, who was a a foreigner and a stranger in in not her homeland. She was a widow, she had nothing. And he grafted her into his family, into his people. And we know that Ruth became a direct, or David was a direct descendant of Ruth, and so was Jesus. And even with Jesus, we see that God chose Mary, a very young girl, a virgin girl, to give birth to the Messiah and to nurture him as his mother. He chose Saul in the New Testament, soon to be Paul, who was a violent, murderous wolf, an enemy of, of the Christians, a murderer of Christians, who despised God's people. And God transformed his life into a shepherd of his sheep, into one who planted numerous churches and who wrote a large chunk of the New Testament that we have. You know, we could go on and go through the whole Bible seeing who God chooses, who the world would never choose, but we'd run out of time. 
God chooses the unchoosable, the outcasts, the hopeless, and works in them and through them so that when amazing things happen through them, people can be in no doubt that it wasn't those people, but it was the one true God that was working through those people who had picked them up and made them into so much more by his transforming power. And I think that's always an encouragement for me when I read about those great biblical heroes. In one sense, they are heroes for following God's uh, commands and having the faith to follow what God was saying. But none of them were perfect. They all sinned. They all fell short. They were all like you and like me before God chose them. And that does link in to us because God chooses us. If we are in Christ, God has chosen us. He has specifically chosen you. He has specifically chosen me. Not just to be a part of his people, like somewhere on the outskirts of his people and his kingdom, but he chooses us to become his sons and his daughters. We've been adopted into the very kingdom of God. Not because of what we've done, because of the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. We may be despised by the world, but we are loved by God. We may be cast out by the world for not being enough, not being good enough, clever enough, smart enough, strong enough. But God takes us in and he cares for us. He saved us. I don't, well, I know there's nothing uh, particularly special or good about me, like there's nothing naturally good occurring for me. I may be okay at playing tennis and I may make a half decent curry occasionally, but nothing enough to merit God's even attention. But God does more than take notice of me. God has chosen me from before time began to be part of his holy and set apart people. And that is the same for me as it is for everyone here. If our faith and trust is in him. And that was the same for David in our reading. So how how might we know that we are truly part of God's people? That we are chosen specifically by God? Well, I believe that If today you're here depending on Jesus as your one true saviour, as the one who died for you on the cross, as the Lord of your life, as the Lord of all creation, and if you've come to God in repentance and faith, if you've received his forgiveness, 
If you've been washed by his blood, sealed by his Holy Spirit, then you are. And that you know that you have been chosen by God. God chooses the ordinary. He chooses those like David. He chooses me. He chooses you to be part of his family and to do his goodwill. On to the, the second point, and I, I think it's important to always remember that even though we may be Christians, that doesn't guarantee us an easy, stress-free life. Despite what we may hear of big famous preachers on YouTube or, or whatever, the prosperity gospel is not the one, but the gospel of Christ is, that's the way we live. We're not promised tons of earthly wealth. We're not promised in uninterrupted good health or to have our many wishes granted, our many desires granted. God knows best rather than us. That's not the true Christian life. We're told throughout the Bible to expect troubles and persecutions just for proclaiming Christ. And even those persecutions are becoming more and more uh, visible and seen in the UK. They may not be as physical as in some other countries, but some of the things we say, people will always be like, oh, because that's because you're a Christian, you're whatever phobic, you're whatever phobic. Just because our faith is in Christ. I think it's a very cliche thing to say, but we, we all have our Goliaths in this life, don't we? We all have those things, our struggles, the things which are daunting and overwhelming. They may, may be personal disasters, it may be the loss of friends, family, maybe sickness, work problems, relational issues. We can even just, we, well, we turn on the news and we see a world that is crying out. But the question is, how do we deal with the Goliaths in our life when they pop up? Do we put our hope, put our reliance in our own strength, in what we can do, in our knowledge, in our, whatever it may be, in our intelligence and strength? Do we even put our faith, our trust, firstly in our friends and family? Obviously they're there to care for us, aren't they? Do we put our faith in our jobs, in our income that we earn? Do we put our faith in the government, in armies, in physical armies? I'm pretty sure King Saul was putting his faith in his army that had already been through countless battles and wars and come through victorious. I'm sure he was putting his faith in them to bail him out. But what happened to them? The highly skilled army was terrified in the sight of Goliath. They saw someone bigger than they were, stronger than they were, mightier than they were, and they were gripped with fear. 
and paralyzed at the sight of Goliath. It says all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. I wonder if any of you have been in a moment or longer uh, paralyzed with fear at a certain point. I remember one, probably one of many, uh, this was maybe 12 years ago, I think. Um, so me and my family were in North Wales uh, in about January, that time of the year. Uh, and my brother had a friend uh, who was visiting him from America, and we decided to climb up Mount Snowdon, which is a tall old mountain for, for the UK. Um, so it was me, my brother, and his friend. We made it to the top uh, and, and took in the amazing views of God's creation and all of that goodness. But our troubles came on the way down. As I said, it was January, and I, I don't know if you know the weather in Wales, but it's similar to here. It's wet, windy. There it was icy and snowy on the, on the, on the way down in particular. And we went, shall I say, equipped for, the, for, the, for a hike. Um, we were wearing, well, these shoes were much better than what I was wearing on that day. Uh, they had no grip on the bottom. We were sliding everywhere. I even remember at one point my brother, he remembered something he watched on TV, that if you put your socks over your shoes, you get more grip going down. So we did that just to try not to fall. So we were making our way very slowly on all fours like animals down the mountain. And we saw these two people like maybe a hundred feet further down and they were like properly kitted out. They had the crampons on their feet, the, the big, what do you call them, sticks and ice axes and things. <laughs> and we were looking at them in our, what, clothes <laughs> and trainers and socks over our shoes. And we were going down slowly. And then all of a sudden, it was like one of those times where time stops and you, you're just looking. But we saw one of the people ahead of us, they fell. They slipped. And they rolled like a hundred feet down the side of the mountain. Thankfully, they were caught in, in some kind of wire. And they got up and continued. But you can imagine us who weren't as nearly kitted out as these guys with our socks over our trainers no gloves no equipment we were we were scared in that moment we just froze and it's like we didn't know how long we were there just looking but we thank god we eventually made it down but I think it's, it's, long story short, it's okay to be afraid in moments when we face our Goliaths. But there is something that we can do rather than just be afraid or once we've processed that fear. And we can do worse than what David did in our reading in verse 45, which is one of my favorite verses. David said, to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. It's almost the, the confidence that he had. It's almost arrogant, but it's not arrogant. It is just that his faith was so strong in what God was capable of. He wasn't trusting in earthly things. We know that David fought off bears and lions working as a shepherd. But he wasn't trusting in himself. He wasn't trusting in his slingshot or the stones that he picked up. Or in his ability to use them. But he trusted in God, in the name of God. And he boldly pronounced it before the fight. Not just after, but before. And it's a reminder that there is such great power in the name of the Lord. The name that was used by David was Jehovah, the self-existent, the eternal one. And that was the Israelites' national name for God. This was the Lord God that had already brought Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. This was the same God that brought the walls of Jericho crashing down. This was the same promise-keeping God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And David knew the Lord. He knew his Lord. And that he knew that his Lord would be on his side and win the battle. Not for David to glory, but for David to glory in the Lord. And for God's people to glory in their Lord. Or who are we trusting in today, this afternoon? Are we trusting in the Lord God? Or are we trusting in something else? I think a good test is when something pops up in our life. A Goliath. What, what's our first response? Do we try and sort it out ourselves? Do we try without delay to overcome it? To panic and run around and see what we can do? And then maybe go to God when all of our own options are exhausted? I mean, I know I sometimes do that. It's, it's a very human thing but let us try to make the Lord God be our first port of call when things come into our life when we're lacking we already sang God is Jehovah Jireh our provider when we are lost God is Jehovah Ra God our shepherd In our brokenness, God is Jehovah Rapha, God our healer. In our guilt, in our shame, in our sin, God is Jehovah Sidkenu, God our righteousness. And when we feel like we're all alone, we're isolated, when no one is with us, God is Jehovah Shammah, God is present. Now we call Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, because he is with us and he will always be 
with us when we call upon His name. On to the third point. We, 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 we can see some obvious similarities between David and Jesus. They were both kings. David was king of Israel and he did amazing things. Jesus is our king. The king of everything. The king of kings. They were both born in Bethlehem. David was a shepherd tending to his father's sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd. Tending to our heavenly father's sheep. We are his sheep. Despite David being an admirable king, he was just a temporary king. He, like every one of us, will pass away. Jesus' kingdom will never pass away. He is the eternal king. In theological terms, David was a type of Christ. It's like a symbolic foreshadowing of the Messiah to come, Jesus. There are similarities. There are also profound differences. Jonah and Moses were also types of Christ. We can also see in our passage another uh, example of how David and Jesus were similar. They were both representatives of their people. David, in our passage, he stepped out from the relative safety of the Israelite army. He stepped out outside of the camp to face Goliath alone. And he knew that the rest of the Israelite army, the rest of the people, their fate was almost tied to his. If he won against Goliath, they all won. If he lost, well, they all would have lost. David did what none of the soldiers did or could at that moment because they were gripped with fear. David put his life on the line. David fought and defeated Goliath. And he won one of many great victories for the Israelites as the Philistines fled from the battlefield. And that's in a way similar to what Jesus has done for us. Jesus is our representative. But he fought a much greater, powerful, bigger, dangerous and more eternal enemy. Jesus fought and saved us from our sin. From all the evil things that we do. That we do to others, that we do to ourselves, that we do to God. Hebrews 2, 9 says, But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus died on the cross to take all of our sin from all of our lives away and onto himself. He washed us clean with his precious blood. And I think as we just took communion, every time we take communion, we are remembering, we are recalling, we are proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection in our own lives, aren't we? Christ went before us. He won the ultimate victory for us. And for everyone who 
simply would repent and put their faith and trust in him and his precious blood. And I think that's especially uh, poignant as we're coming up to Easter. But I think as Christians, we always live that out. We always should remember what Jesus has done for us. That he died on the cross. That he suffered physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually on our behalf. It's not just a a one weekend of the year thing that we remember. It's 24-7. Because Christ has saved us not just to be Easter Christians or Sunday Christians, but to be full-time, every second of every day Christians. Now on to the final point that we see once David killed uh, Goliath and the Philistines fled, it's interesting to see that the Israelites didn't just put their feet up and relax and have a cup of tea or whatever they had back then, but they chased the Philistines down. They pursued them. Quite a long way, I, I don't know how far in miles, but it was quite a long way that they chased them. David's victory gave the Israelites confidence. It gave them the hope and the will to stand up and to drive out the enemy with all that they had. And we as Christians saved by Jesus, we still have a very real and present enemy today. Jesus has already won the victory. He's already killed the Goliath of the (coughs) devil and sin. That is for sure. But we're warned in 1 Peter 5.8, to be sober and to be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's still a dangerous and real foe. And he's someone that we can't lower our guard around. And sin is something that is always crouching at our door, isn't it? It's waiting for us to become complacent, waiting for us to take our eyes off the Savior, and then it will sneak in. Where should our eyes be? It shouldn't be looking out at the things of the world, but it should be looking up at God. Our eyes should be looking and fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. He won us the victory. He also maintains our victory. We don't. We look to Him. We look to the cross where our victory was won. We look to Him to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be motivated to stand up against evil, against sin, and against injustice. We're motivated to stand up and chase out any sin from our lives. And we can, by God's grace, by His strength, by the faith that we have in Him. The Bible says that we should put sin to death. And that's a very active thing on our behalf. It's not passive. We are being sanctified by God. But we also are commanded not just to put our feet up, but to chase 
sin out, to take every sinful thought captive. Christ didn't come and die for us so that we might remain wallowing in our own sin, in our old life. But our eyes and hearts should be fixed on Him and not the world. They should be fixed on Him and not us. When we sin, it gives us pleasure now, doesn't it? But two seconds later, we're filled with guilt, we're filled with shame. But when we trust in God, despite maybe facing difficulties now, we have an eternity of glory and joy to look forward to. So let us keep our eyes, our hearts, our minds fixed, not on the things of the world, not on what we can do, or even what we can do for one another, but first and foremost, let let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our Good Shepherd, who has loved us, who has given himself for us. Let us always remember his life, his death, his resurrection, not just in the run-up to Easter, but every single day. And we can always rejoice in that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all creation. That you, Lord, are Lord of Lords. You are King of Kings. Lord, we can sing of your majesty. And all that your majesty has won on our behalf. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. Our Saviour, our Friend, our Redeemer. And Lord, we can count our blessings, our numerous blessings that we have in you. We thank you for saving us from an enemy that we could never face on our own. We thank you for plucking us up from the ash heap of our former lives and for lifting us to be in communion with you. We thank you that you've gone to prepare a place for us in glory. And Lord, day by day, we say, come Lord Jesus, come for us, come for your church. And until that day comes, Lord, may we keep our eyes and our faith and our trust in you. We thank you, Lord, that you don't measure the, the strength of our faith our faith the size of a mustard seed is enough if the substance of our faith is you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you and praise you for all that you've done and all that you have promised to continue to do in us until you come again, Lord. So strengthen us. Encourage us. Be with us, Lord. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.